And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing all right. Got a bit of a cold snap this weekend, but surviving. (laughs) Yeah, I'm feeling a little under the weather, but I am looking forward to this week's episode. Hopefully it will pick me up a bit. I know I have seen this movie. Mm-hmm. I do not remember anything about it. <laughs> and from watching every horror movie ever made in chronological order up to this point, I'm very interested in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is this movie? Yes. So this week we are watching Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman from 1943. Mm-hmm. And this film represents a very significant milestone, uh, at least as I can tell, uh, because it is the first crossover in film history. Mm -hmm. Um, There are crossovers in other media that predate this, although not by much. Like what? Uh, Like the first comic book crossovers happened in 1940, and then if you really want to get highfalutin about it, you could talk about... You know, things like Dante's Inferno, where, like, Dante and Virgil, from the who wrote the Aeneid, hang out. Or you could talk about Greek myths like Jason and the Argonauts, where, like, Jason gathers together, like, all of these, like, different heroes from other Greek myths together. Sure. Um, but in terms of movies, it had never been done before this film. So you don't get to, like, you know our modern obsession with cinematic shared universes uh, without this movie. Why do you think the first crossover movie is a horror movie? Do you think there's anything there? I think maybe, but I think um, a big part of why crossovers happen is the unique economics of like art and culture in the 20th century. So you know, in previous eons of human history, (laughs) um, you know, fictional characters were either, you know, the unique creations of a single author, you know, all the Tom Sawyer books are written by Mark Twain. And yeah, like Huck Finn has like a spinoff, but when the two characters team up, that's not like a crossover, you know? Or if you go back earlier than that, then fictional characters are just the product of, like, folk culture, right? So you have, you know, the fact that you can sort of integrate a folklore character like Tristan and Isolde into the folklore of King Arthur uh, when they weren't originally related, but that also, like, isn't quite a crossover in the sense that we mean it today. I think the thing that contributes to what creates that is in the 20th century you start having characters who are owned by corporations so instead of you know a single author deciding the destiny of batman or frankenstein or one of these characters it's a company and when you have that it's a really easy stretch for that company to get from well i own superman and i own batman to 
hey, people like those guys, what if they hung out? Like, people would like that even more, right? I think it happens in horror in movies first just because the idea of, like, these characters that happen in more than one movie, like, that carry a franchise or a series, the only ones other than horror movies were, like, detective-type movies. And usually what happened was each studio had their own flavor, right? Like, we've talked about this in past episodes, like, oh, you know, this studio does the Charlie Chan movies, and this studio does the Mr. Moto movies, and so on. Universal was unique in that they had, like, multiple of these horror franchises going. They weren't just Frankenstein. They had Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman and the Mummy, so they could cross them over. And I think it's not surprising that it's Wolfman and Frankenstein teaming up here, or at the very least meeting each other, because Frankenstein has been the most successful franchise of Universal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is its fourth sequel, Yes. Basically. Um, and Wolfman just came out like two years ago and made a shit ton of money. Yeah. And he's the hot new thing right now. Yeah, it's it's the it's your um your flagship character and your hot new character teaming yeah. up, right? It's like putting, you know, Spider Man together with Wolverine in the eighties or uh nowadays I guess that would be like, you know, having Iron Man and the Guardians of the Galaxy meet, right? Sure. So, with all that being said, as you just mentioned, this is the fifth Frankenstein movie and the second Wolfman movie at the yeah. same time. So, one of the things that happens with any crossover, if you're used to them in any media, is coming into a story with, like, a lot of continuity baggage like, already in existence, right? You, you, you yeah, go Frankenstein's and... rolling up in the train station with, like, two, co like, rail cars full of baggage, and Wolfman just has, like, his little travel bag. Right, You know, yeah. like, they both have baggage, but Frankenstein definitely has the bulk here. Yeah, so maybe we should do a brief recap of kind of what has gone before. Sure, here's the briefcase <laughs> of the baggage. Sure. I'm going to take you back to 1931... We were so young then. <laughs> um, we were on episode 26 then. Starry-eyed. Now we're in, like, episode 102. So Frankenstein came out in 1931. It was directed by James Whale and introduced Boris Karloff to audiences and shot him to fame. Um, and Colin Clive was the titular Frankenstein. We also had a Dwight Fry role here as Fritz. Now, Frankenstein advertised itself as adapting Mary Shelley's novel, but what it really does is just adapt the first half. Um, it starts with uh, the doctor and Fritz digging up corpses and whatever to build the creature. The creature is born, <laughs> fully made, um, and the doctor spends a lot of time trying to essentially raise him. But he's taken back... Uh, to normal society, uh, to get ready for his marriage to Elizabeth. And on the wedding day, the creature barges in and attempts to wreak vengeance on Dr. Frankenstein. Um, the big thing here being that the, that the creature cannot speak, um, but you do get a sense of his motivations. And the film ends in a windmill going up in flames, Frankenstein being tossed from the windmill, alive, barely, um, and the creature 
uh, succumbing to the the flames and the collapse of the windmill. The movie itself kind of dealt with family abuse themes. That's something we read out of it. Um, and a little bit of some queer themes. Um, but a lot of it was about, like, parenthood and responsibility mm-hmm. with that. Which is in line with what Mary Shelley was talking about, um, especially in her first edition of the of the novel. And if you want to check out our episode on Frankenstein, that's number 26. And it's currently ranked at number 9. Four years later, everyone decided to reprise their roles in 1935's Bride of Frankenstein. Episode 48 currently ranked number 10. And what's kind of significant with Bride is that it's the first horror movie post-code. Yes. James Whale returns as the director, but this is his second film in the code era. And we talk in that episode a lot about how he, Whale seems to have like an understanding of how to start coding things. Mm -hmm. Probably because he was already kind of used to coding things, but now he has to be a bit more subtle. And ironically, it's very like explicit in Bride, if you know what to look for. To that point, there's a lot of queer coding. In Bride, it picks up pretty much right at the end of the first one. The windmill is smoldering, and the creature rises up. He has survived. Um, A little worse for wear. And he stumbles into the forest, he meets a blind man, and he gets a sense of a, a good relationship, a friendship. And this is where he can actually learn to speak. And that's the big thing in this film, at least in the overall franchise. Meanwhile, Frankenstein is being tempted back into the creature-making game by an old mentor of his. And it, the film culminates with the creature being manipulated by this old mentor to demand a mate from Frankenstein, and they create the bride. But the bride rejects the creature, and in anger, the creature blows up the tower. But just before that happens, Frankenstein escapes. So those two, Frankenstein and Bride, are pretty good, like, you can see how they're sequels, Mm -hmm. mainly because they are adapting, between the two of them, the whole of Shelley's novel. Um, But then, in... 1939, we get Son of Frankenstein. And this is a bit of a combo breaker for a few reasons. So we no longer have James Whale directing. It's now Roland V. Lee. Colin Clive is not in it because he had passed away by this point. But Kurloff does return. Um, And you can kind of see why, because the creature has been kind of the main focal point in the first two films. In Son of Frankenstein, alongside Kurloff, we have Lionel Atwill, joining the cast. Basil Rathbone as the son of Frankenstein, Baron uh, Wolf von Frankenstein. And Bella Lugosi joins the cast as Igor. The main theme of it is all about dealing with your father's legacy. Um, and Basil Rathbone does an amazing performance showing how he's grappling with that, especially with like that legacy personified in the creature. Karloff does... You know, he's always pretty good, but he was actually pretty disappointed with this film because the creature is basically relegated to Igor, Bela Lugosi's character's hitman. Mm-hmm. Igor basically upstages the creature in this film. The creature can no longer talk, he's mostly silent, 
And that was really the only thing that we found kind of disappointing about this film. Overall, it was a really good film. It is episode 66, if you want to check it out. And Son of Frankenstein is ranked number 8. So, given that it's above the original and Bride of Frankenstein, you can kind of see how much we liked it. And that film ends with the creature basically being, like, thrown or, like, falling into some sulfur pits um, and presumed dead. So with Karloff pretty disappointed with his role and, like, what he was given in Son of Frankenstein, he chose not to return for 1942's Ghost of Frankenstein. So if you're keeping count at home, that's four Frankenstein films. So pretty much everyone in the cast and crew have changed over, except for Bela Lugosi, who is reprising his role as Igor. Earl C. Kenton directs, and we have Lon Chaney Jr. stepping into the elevator shoes to be the creature. Cedric Hardwick plays Dr. Ludwig Frankenstein. The other son of Frankenstein. And I think he's older than Wolf. Um... No, he's he's specifically in the plot younger. Oh, he just looks older. Right. That's why I'm confused. And then we looked it up and found out the actor actually was younger, and we were like, Cedric Hardwick, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> Lionel Atwell also returns, but he plays a different character. He plays another he he plays a doctor who's a colleague of Dr. Ludwig. And Ghost, it's episode ninety, if you want to check it out. It's ranked number 47, so it's a combo breaker in that sense, too. And it's not so much that the film is bad, because 47, that's maybe like middle of the list-ish? That's, that's almost precisely middle of the list-ish at this point. But it's definitely a disappointment when the last three films have all been in the top ten. Yeah. And kind of the most important thing here is the creature still cannot speak. He um, is still quite dumb. He's been kicked many times. Uh, he's, he's in recovery from his injuries. And so Igor takes him to see Dr. Ludwig Frankenstein. And we have like a reprisal of these themes of dealing with the father's legacy, but they aren't handled nearly as well or interestingly as in Son of Frankenstein. And it culminates with <laughs> Igor's brain being placed in the creature's body by... The doctor played by Atwill. And this doctor, you know, he was promised greatness from Igor, because Igor is evil. I haven't really made that clear yet. And he's like, I'm going to take over the world, but I can't with my current body, so put me in the creature's body and then I can do it, and I'll make you, like, head of the doctors in this city. Surgeon General of the Igor Empire. <laughs> exactly. But the doctor, I forget his name, I'll say Dr. Atwill. <laughs> He, uh, he was so blinded by ambition, he didn't think to check if Igor's brain would be accepted by the creature's body. So, while the surgery is successful, the creature slash Igor go blind. And then the Institute blows up, and the creature slash Igor is left in the building as it crumbles. You know, these movies tend to end the same way. Mm -hmm. But that's where we're at in terms of the creature's history, and baggage. Yeah. He's blind. He's Igor. <laughs> um, he was blown up in a uh, the Frankenstein estate in the town of Viseria, which might be in Germany. Yeah, it's very um, ambiguous. 
purposefully where these movies are set. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Frankenstein. But of course there's another monster starring in this film, and it's the Wolfman. And you might be wondering to yourself, but Lon Chaney Jr. was the creature in Ghost of Frankenstein, but he's also the Wolfman. How are they going to do this? Well, dear listener, just you wait. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I, I can certainly fill that in. For sure. So Lon Chaney Jr., as I said, stars as the Wolfman, slash Larry Talbert is his human name. <laughs> the film came out in 1941. Basically, the success of the Wolfman is why he was cast as the creature in 1942's Ghost of Frankenstein. The Wolfman is episode 88, if you want to check it out, and it's ranked number 14. So not as high as the other Frankensteins, but, you know, pretty dang good. Yeah, top 20. It's directed by George Wagner and written by Kurt Siedmack. And I bring that up because this next one is written by the same dude. Joining Lon Chaney Jr. was Claude Rains, playing his father, which was comical. And Bela Lugosi had what we would basically call today a cameo as the Roma Bella. <laughs> so in the film, Larry Talbot, who is Chaney, is in, like, England? Wales. Wales. He's in Wales, visiting his dad and his estate, and there's a bit of a sense of, like, dealing with your family's legacy and things like that, when he is cursed werewolfery. Lycanthropy. Lycanthropy. They, I think they call it werewolfery in the movie, though. I specifically remember that. And the story goes that if someone's cursed with lycanthropy, that even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. And I bring this up because this implies that it's not any time the moon is up, it's specifically in autumn and if the wolfbane is blooming. Mm-hmm. In the end, Talbot is killed by a silver cane wielded by his own father. And it's a bit of a... It's a tragic horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why I love it so much. Just It's so good. And Larry Talbot is, is a really sympathetic character, and Chaney plays him super well. Now, the reason I wanted to bring up the writer, Kurt Siedmack, is we kind of went in depth in that episode about Siedmack purposely putting in anti-Nazi messages and themes into this movie, which is crazy, because it's the Wolfman. You know, you... Yeah, I just love it. Um, And his whole thesis, basically, was that any person can become monstrous. The Wolfman, the person who is infected by lycanthropy, will see a Star of David slash pentagram, they call it a pentagram in the movie, um, on his next victim. So there's where you kind of get a bit more of a, no, really, it's Nazis. Any person can become a monstrous Nazi. Mm-hmm. Other kind of themes that we picked up out of there were discussions of mental illness, and we had a really good discussion on basically the ethics of gray morality. Hmm, Yes. It was a really good episode, and just shameless plugging all over there, episode 88, check it out. So, significantly less baggage for the Wolfman than for Frankenstein. Part of that is there's only one movie for Wolfman, but probably the biggest thing is that Wolfman is not being adapted from a source material, it is its own thing, whereas Frankenstein has to... Going in, even the 31 Frankenstein had baggage with right. it. So, if I'm picking up what you're putting down, uh, we begin this movie then with the Wolfman dead in Wales. Correct. And the Frankenstein's monster 
presumed dead in possibly Germany. Germany. Yeah. Feels uh, like that we'll makes say, it... We'll say, like, continental Europe, Right. You know? It feels like that would make it very difficult for them to meet. Here's the thing, though. The creature appears to die at the end of every Frankenstein film. If there's anyone who can resuscitate monsters, it's universal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think even saying continental Europe isn't good enough, because by 1943, basically, continental Europe and Nazi Germany are the same thing. So... (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the story of... Frankenstein meets the Wolfman begins with writer Kurt Seatmack, who, as you mentioned, wrote the original Wolfman. And he's written um, quite a few other horror movies uh, that we've seen on the show, including uh, The Invisible Man Returns for Universal. Uh, in the time since The Wolfman came out, Seatmack has written two films The Invisible Agent for Universal and London Blackout Murders for Republic. The Invisible Agent, was that the comedy? No. No. That was The Invisible Woman, was a uh, screwball comedy. No, both of these films actually had wartime themes, anti-Nazi wartime themes. Uh, so that's right in his wheelhouse. Right. The Invisible Agent uh, was actually a spy thriller sequel to The Invisible Man series, in which the grandson of the original Invisible Man serves as a secret agent fighting the Nazis by using his grandfather's like invisibility serum as like a secret agent tool. Nice. So, Seed Mac was sitting in the Universal Studio commissary one day, uh, racking his brains for a new movie idea so that he could afford the down payment on a new car. Uh, Wolfman producer-director George Wagner uh, approached Seed Mac and asked him if he had any new ideas. And Seed Mac jokingly replied, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. <laughs> Wagner then left to eat his lunch and later called Seed Mac in the afternoon Uh, and said, go ahead, buy the car. (laughs) So uh, this film is produced by George Wagner, uh, although he does not direct. So in the previous Frankenstein movie, as we said, Lugosi's character Igor had his brain implanted into the monster, and how they handled that in the previous film was that Bill Lugosi dubbed Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance, so the creature was able to talk again, but he talked in Lugosi's voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, since Cheney would be playing the Wolfman in this flick, uh, it made sense, therefore, to recast the monster with Lugosi. Ooh, 2020 vision. Sure makes that sting a little for Lugosi. Yeah, so this ironically places Lugosi in the role that he had ruined his career with by rejecting 12 years earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So after after 12 years, Lugosi is finally playing Frankenstein. Now, this would be the final Universal Frankenstein movie to actually feature a member of the Frankenstein family as a character. Uh, in this case, it's Elsa Frankenstein, granddaughter of Dr. Henry Frankenstein. Now, Elsa was played by Evelyn Ankers in Ghost of Frankenstein, uh, but Evelyn Ankers had actually also played love interest Gwen in The Wolfman, and the producers thought it would be weird if Lon Chaney's character, Larry Talbot, uh, basically interacted with two different women played by the same actress. So, the part of Elsa was recast in this movie with Ilona Massey. Born Ilona Haimashi in 1910 in Budapest, she earned money as a dressmaker's apprentice to take singing lessons, 
and then worked her way up from chorus line to roles at the Staats Opera. Wow. She came over to America in 1937 after making a few Austrian feature films and was initially promoted to audiences as the new Marlena Dietrich. However, audiences did not find her to live up to the hype. Her soprano voice was too light for movies recording technology at the time, so it didn't really sound that great. And her acting felt stilted to American audiences. So her career kind of fell into a slump, and she ended up in sort of a typecasting of playing, like, suspicious, dangerous foreign women in low-budget thrillers. In the other non-monster lead role in the cast, we have English actor Patrick Knowles as Dr. Mannering. Born Reginald Lawrence Knowles in 1911, he ran away from home at age 14 to become an actor instead of taking his place in the family's bookbinding business. He changed his name and made his film debut in 1932. He was signed to a contract by Warner Brothers and moved to America in 1936. In 1939, he switched to RKO but continued to struggle to find good roles. In 1940, He traveled to Canada to enlist in the Royal Canadian Air Force, but an eye condition meant that he would never fly as a combat pilot. As originally written, the script continued on Siedmak's anti-Nazi themes that he had been exploring in past films. Igor's brain, in the monster's body, would first endeavor to have his blindness cured. Uh, so he goes to Patrick Knowles' Dr. Mannering character to have this done. And then once that is accomplished, he resumes his goals of using his great strength and longevity to conquer the world. The director of this film is Roy William Neal. Uh, and we've seen a few of his previous films, uh, such as Black Moon from 1934 and The Black Room from 1935. Uh, By this time, he had become the regular director of Universal's Sherlock Holmes series, starring Basil Rathbone, starting with the fourth entry, Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon, from 1942, and continuing on to the 14th and final entry in 1946. Uh, This is the last horror film we will see from Roy William Neal, however. This is also the last time we're going to see Dwight Fry. Mm -hmm. Um, So as we discussed in our episode on Dead Men Walk, Uh, Fry would die of a heart attack later in 1943. His role here is of a villager named Rudy. Other familiar faces in the cast include Lionel Atwill as the mayor of Viseria and Maria Uspenskaya reprising her role as Maleva from The Wolfman. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she was uh, Bella's mother in The Wolfman. Who kind of explains the rules of being a werewolf to to top it. Yes, exactly. Um, Dwight Fry's actually been in all prior Frankenstein movies. So he was Fritz in the first one, Carl in Bride, who's kind of like a... He's a criminal. He's a, he murders people. Um, he has a cameo as a reporter in Son of Frankenstein, as a villager who demands to blow up the castle in Ghost of Frankenstein, and now Rudy here. Mm-hmm. So uh, in order to facilitate the plot elements that resurrect Cheney's character, Larry Talbot. Uh, The poem that you recited from the original Wolfman is changed from when the autumn moon is bright to when the moon is full and bright. Uh, And this solidifies the full moon as the trigger for the transformations of werewolves, uh, which has continued to this day. Mm -hmm. 
So as filming of Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman began, it became clear that the physical demands of playing the monster, uh, like the lifts and the shoulder pads and the 35 pounds of makeup, were going to be a very big physical strain on Lugosi, who turned 60 years old during the movie's production. Midway through filming, Lugosi actually collapsed from exhaustion and required hospitalization. For this reason, many of the more physically demanding scenes of the monster, such as fights or feats of great strength, were performed by stunt doubles Gil Perkins and Eddie Parker. As for Lionel Atwill, his perjury scandal, which you can learn more about in previous episodes of Scream Scene, led to Universal cutting much of his role to minimize his presence in the film. And this had the side effect of minimizing Dwight Fry's role as well, since he shared many scenes with Atwill. That's kind of too bad. However, much more drastic cuts were made to the film following test screenings. Audiences found the monster speaking with Lugosi's Hungarian accent to be hilarious. (laughs) And they laughed the entire time he was on screen. Uh, In response the studio cut all of Lugosi's dialogue scenes. And in some instances um, where they couldn't cut it, they dropped the sound out and then did like ADR and Foley just to eliminate Lugosi's voice. All mention of Igor's brain in the monster's body was cut out, as was all mention of the monster being blind. This left Lugosi's walking around with outstretched arms appear to be unmotivated. Additionally, the re-editing of the monster's plotline to facilitate these changes created continuity errors between Lugosi and the stuntmen, resulting in scenes of stuntmen walking with outstretched arms, uh, outnumbering scenes where Lugosi plays the role sighted, and also the creature sort of switching from blind to sighted and back again throughout the movie. Although that's not really made explicit in the film, it's just how the creature's being performed. Yeah, because he can no longer speak, so mm-hmm. he can't be like, hey, Doc, fix my eyes. Yeah, that plot line's all gone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this resulted in the lasting stereotype of the Frankenstein monster walking in this manner with the outstretched arms. However, removed from the original rationale for why that is. Due to the dialogue scenes for the monster being removed, but the action scenes, for the most part, retained... Most of the stunt double footage is still in the final film, but Lugosi only appears for five minutes and six seconds altogether. But that wouldn't have any, like, effect on how much he was paid in the end, right? No. Okay. No, because you you get paid for days worked, yeah, not, yeah. like, minutes appeared. Also, he would be this one still credited as the monster because it's 1943 and we don't credit stunt people yet. Yeah. Now, the culling of the monster's plotline means that the movie's narrative structure shifted, and it now, as is, exists in basically two halves. An initial half that's just about Larry Talbot, that's basically a little mini-sequel to The Wolfman, and then a second half about the Wolfman meeting the Frankenstein monster. Originally, there was to be more of both monsters operating solo before finally meeting, but most of the monster's solo stuff has been completely cut. I guess it kind of also makes sense that it would end up this way because Wolfman was more successful, even if 
Ghost of Frankenstein was more recent. Yeah, the issue, I think, was basically that audiences didn't find Lugosi speaking at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein to be amusing. It's in the climax and the drama is up. And and the plot of the movie has been leading you there the whole way through. You've been prepared for it. In this movie, you know, they wake up the monster and he talks and it's Bella Lugosi. And I think people just found it funny and, you know, even if it's explained like, oh, it's, you know, because he has this guy's brain or whatever, like a lot of that relies on you having seen the previous movies and not just kind of vaguely knowing what the Frankenstein monster is from pop culture. Yeah, and like Ghost is, well, I guess it's not too long ago. That's just last year. But Ghost was like a B-movie, right? Yeah. Like more people are familiar with, I think, the Karloff monster than would have seen Ghost, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman was released on March 5th, 1943, and its B-movie level budget, coupled with the studio's enthusiastic marketing, uh, resulted in the film being a financial success. Although, critical reaction was mixed. The New York Times called the film a great disappointment, as the fight between the monsters was too little too late, and commented, Universal will have to try again. Variety was more complimentary, praising the film's direction, pacing, and use of suspense. That's nearly 66 years to the day for us watching it now. Oh, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, we're recording this on... March 3rd. Wow. So how are we watching this? Well, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman can be found on DVD and Blu-ray as part of either the Frankenstein Legacy Collection, or the Wolfman Legacy Collection from Universal Home Video. So we own it twice, basically? Yeah, we're going to be watching it on DVD as part of the Wolfman Legacy Collection. Uh, You can also find the film online at the Cineplex Store, YouTube, Google Play, and iTunes. Okay, folks, well, if you would like to watch along, there's where you can find access to the film. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman from 1943, directed by Roy William Neal. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone, we just finished watching Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman from 1943, directed by Roy William Neal. What did you think, Ben? You know, um, I liked it. I, I certainly, I think I liked it more than I thought I was going to going in. I've seen this movie before, but like you, I couldn't remember what I kind of thought of it. It does, I think, start strong and peter, peter out. <laughs> And I also think it has a bit of the same problem uh, that we thought Ghost of Frankenstein has, in that it sort of ends right when it gets going. Yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I also enjoyed this more than I expected, but um, yeah, we can talk about that in the discussion, I guess. Mm -hmm. I have some thoughts about this movie. Sure. And whether it was doomed from the beginning. (laughs) Okay. So to tell everyone about the movie... 
It's set four years since the events of The Wolfman. Now, I don't believe we actually got dates in The Wolfman no. either. So, you know. What year is it? Exactly. The Wolfman was presumably set in 1941, which means, as Ben made a joke about during the watching of the movie, if it's four years later, we are now in the future, and therefore in post-war Europe. Yeah, and um, then we got to the parts set in Viseria and saw, like, the cop uniforms. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Hey, I don't know. What don't year know. is it? What year is it? And we open on two grave robbers breaking in to the Talbot crypt, and they are looking for Larry Talbot's coffin. Tomb. Sarcophagus? No. The stone coffin. And they are looking for Larry Talbot because he was buried with, you know, his, uh, an expensive ring. They're looking to rob his grave. And as they uncover the body, the movie is at least like, yeah, Larry Talbot died in The Last Wolf Man. Here's his body. Mm -hmm. It's covered in wolfsbane. And the two grave robbers kind of freak out a bit about that. And as they take off the wolfsbane, the full moon falls upon the corpse and he comes to life. Reanimates himself, as it were. Yes. And the use of the full moon here, like we talked about in the intro, that like this is where the like full moon becomes the thing yes. for werewolves. And the thing I just want to note here, because this you know, just goes back and forth depending on what werewolf movie you're watching. But the implication I got out of this movie is that the thing that affects the transformation is, like, literally the light of, of the moon. moon. Like, because yes. every time they show, like, the moon coming out from behind a cloud and the light, like, moving across the room and hitting him and then the thing happens. It's not necessarily just, like, the time of day. Like, this movie implies that, like, you could keep Larry from turning into a werewolf if you just, like, kept the curtains closed all the time. Yes. I mean, I think the wolfsbane has something to do with it as well. Sure. Um, like, it's very, like, compelling visually mm -hmm. to see the moonlight creeping up and touching him and then he reacts. Um, but it does give a similar feel to the movie Day After Tomorrow when people are running from frost. Yes. Coming down the hall. It's a little... It's a little strange, but whatever. We're in a horror movie. So Larry Talbot awakens as the Wolfman, demolishes one of these guys, just straight up kills him. It's great. Uh, other guy runs off. And then Larry wakes up in Queen's Hospital in Cardiff, a completely different town, with it being implied that it's quite far away from where he was buried. Yeah, he was buried in the village of Lanwilly, which, I mean... At, is that a real place? Uh, I don't know. I know Cardiff is a real place. Yeah, it's the, the capital they're, of Wales. They're both in Wales, though, these places, because, like, the Wolfman was set in Wales. So, yes, he's in, like, a totally different place, and yes, it's a long distance away, but it's not, like, a Canadian long distance away, because, like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, like, the distance from, like, Calgary to Edmonton is longer than the distance from Cardiff to London. Okay, well, regardless, he wakes up in a completely different place. Yeah. And he has a head wound. Um, and he doesn't really seem to remember much. He does remember his name. And then one night he transforms while he's in the hospital, breaks out, kills someone, comes back. And that's when he realizes, right, I'm like Talbot, werewolf. He remembers the whole deal. But no one at the hospital believes him. They do go, huh, he's a lycanthrope. He thinks he turns into a wolf. They don't actually believe it's a real thing. Everyone is mildly confused when he says his name, though, because Larry Talbot died four years ago. Yeah, so his doctor, Dr. Mannering, and the police 
head to Talbot's hometown to be like, hey, like, is there a body in the crypt? Like, what's going on? And we get kind of spooks with that. Talbot breaks out of the hospital as a wolf and eventually tracks down the Roma woman who first kind of gave him the spiel in the first Wolfman, um, named Maliva. He's like, you need to help me. And she's like, ah, I know. I'll take you to see Dr. Frankenstein. What I love about this is that he said that, like, he's traveled all across continental Europe looking for her. Like, it's implied he's found her, like, somewhere nearby to Viseria, which is implied to be in Germany. And, like, man, is continental Europe not a good place to be for either, like, an American slash Englishman or, like, a Romani person <laughs> at this time. Yeah, it's it's like a Welsh werewolf in Nazi Germany. Yeah. 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 The movie just goes out of its way to just pretend the war is not a thing that's happening. They also explicitly only refer to Dr. Frankenstein, not Dr. Ludwig Frankenstein, who is who they are heading off to see. So it's a direct sequel to Ghost of Frankenstein. Um, but I get the feeling that they're hoping that no one saw any of these others because they only say Dr. Frankenstein and, you know, relatives of Dr. Frankenstein. I think the the implication I got was that they were just trying to avoid confusing anyone who hadn't seen the last couple movies, because if you've seen Ghost of Frankenstein, you understand they mean Ludwig. If you haven't, you know from culture, like, generally who Dr. Frankenstein is, right? Yeah. So, Maliva and Larry arrive in Viseria, uh, and they find that Dr. Frankenstein is dead. See, the last Frankenstein movie. Mm -hmm. um, Larry goes to the ruins to try to find the diary of Frankenstein to try to find, you know, the secret to life and death. And he stumbles upon the creature buried in ice under the castle. This straight up frozen solid. <laughs> and he frees the creature, uh, which is fine. The creature shows him where the notes would be and they are not there. Larry then plans to make contact with Elsa Frankenstein to urge her to give him her father's notes. Meanwhile, Dr. Mannering catches up with Talbot and offers to help destroy the creature for the townsfolk and Elsa and help Larry destroy himself. Because Larry is like, clearly I cannot die by natural means. All I want to do is die because I just keep killing people, so please kill me. I loved the implication that the way that Mannering followed him was by following the trail of, like, Death. dead bodies that happen at, like, on the full moon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite dark. So this is the plan, but at the ninth hour, Mannering changes his mind and decides to give the creature full strength and no word on whether he still plans on killing Talbot. Meanwhile, one disgruntled villager has had enough with the Frankensteins and plans to blow up the dam that's behind the old Frankenstein ruins. There were no ruins behind the Frankenstein mansion slash castle in the last movie, but that's fine. We can do retcons all over the place. So as the fully charged creature and wolfman fight, Mannering and Elsa escape the castle just as the dam blows up and destroys the ruins with the titular monsters inside. The end. Yeah. So I, I skimmed a bit, you know, I don't think we need to know the minute details of draining the creature's energies by switching from positive poles to negative poles and draining Talbot's energy in the same <laughs> way because he's super net. Like, we don't need 
But the movie does try to, like, science it out like that. I, I will say that, and, you know, I'm not sure because we're only doing horror. We're not doing sci-fi as well. But I think this might be the first occasion of reversing the polarity being used as, like, an all-purpose, does-whatever-you-want-it-to <laughs> techno-babble solution because they do that all the time on Doctor Who and all the time on Star Trek. If yes. you ever need to solve the problem, you just reverse the polarity. I, I find this movie... A little puzzling. Yes. Because it has a very powerful, gripping opening. It continues the dark, tragic nature of Larry Talbot from The Wolfman. It's moody, shadowy, it's great. Wolfman 2 is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein 5 sucks. Yes. Um, but I kind of expected that, given the context you gave in the opening, because, like... How will it not suck when you cut down the creature's presence and roll like this? Yeah, and you can really, if you know that it, the cuts are there, like if you know that that stuff's been cut out of the movie, you can tell when yes. you watch it. Because, um, not just because like there are things that don't make sense, um, but also because like knowing that that stuff was cut out is the only way to connect some dots in this movie. Yeah. Because the creature has been so cut down in here that, you know, in the last two movies he was like the henchman, right? He was Igor's henchman. In this movie, where technically speaking he is Igor, even though the movie cuts all mention of that, he's basically reduced down to like a MacGuffin. Yeah. Like he hardly does anything. Uh, Talbot gets him out of the ice. Then he leads Talbot to where the diary should be. Then at one point he just shows up in the town randomly and causes a scene. Then he's hanging out with Talbot in the ruins. Then they hook him up to the machine to bring him to full strength. Uh, then he fights the Wolfman. And that's it. Yeah. Um, and if you know the nature of what's been cut out, things start to make a bit more sense. Like, I suspect that originally the idea was supposed to be that, like, the Igor creature is, like, manipulating Talbot. Because... Talbot just all of a sudden wants the doctor's, like, notes on life and death. And it's not really, like, made clear why that would help him. But it would make sense that, like, Igor would want those notes because he's blind and he wants to fix that. And so, like, oh, I'm going to manipulate this other dude into getting the thing I want for me by telling him it's the thing he wants. Yeah, and I think that's also why Mannering changes his mind at the end. Um, I mean, besides the trope of the scientist or doctor needing to see the limits or whatever. You know, like, I think, like, maybe Igor had been talking and manipulating him. Exactly. In the same way that he talked to and manipulated the doctor from the last movie. Um, and maybe, also, that's where most of Sead Mac's anti-Nazi themes were, because as it stands, there's not really anything here left of those. Um, the other thing that, like, has no motivation is that the monster just attacks Elsa once he's got all the power. That really only seems to happen because she's she... the girl. And it's the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, also, what happened to Maliva? Yes. She's hanging out with all of them in the castle. Then the experiment happens. Then the dam blows up and washes everyone away. We see Mannering and Elsa get out. So did Maliva die with the monsters in the castle? Yeah, she just doesn't appear at all. Um, there's no mention of her. The stuff that's been cut out really 
takes the rug out from under the second half of the movie, right? Yeah, so it, it just, it feels like stuff is just happening and you don't see why. Exactly. The strongest material, and I agree with you here, is probably everything before Talbot finds the monster. Wolfman 2 stuff, as you called it. Um, in some ways, I thought that that stuff was even better horror than the original Wolfman. Yeah, it felt like a really natural extension. Mm-hmm. Because on top of becoming a creature outside of his control when the full moon is out, Talbot has now found out that he cannot, for some reason, die. And he's terrified of that. Yeah, having a protagonist in a movie whose primary goal is suicide is pretty different for a Hollywood flick. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so good. It just encapsulates the tragic horror that is like I'm turning into something or I'm out of control and I can't do anything about it. Even the ultimate like, well, if I could just end my life, but I can't even do that. Yeah, like the fact that Talbot can't commit suicide is framed as a tragedy, which is probably against the spirit of the production code, if not the letter. Yeah. How um, do you think they got that passed? Well, because so the, what the production code says is that um, having suicide as a plot element is strongly discouraged unless it is absolutely necessary for the development of the story. That means that you can have suicide as long as you can prove it's like totally, you know, worth it basically, um, but, you know, or necessary for the story to make sense. Um, but I think the thing that you get away with here is he never actually does it, mm-hmm. right? It's just, like, what he wants to do. Sure. Um, and I think the way that you subvert things is, like, for all intents and purposes, Talbot is our protagonist, but I think the fact of the matter is um, Dr. Mannering is our, like, romantic lead, Yes. So you can spin the movie so that he's the hero. So it's not necessarily our hero who's expressing, like, a positive view of suicide. It's Talbot, who's the wolf man. He's the monster. Even though, like, obviously he's actually the tragic, sympathetic protagonist, right? Definitely, yeah. Um, speaking of sympathy, even with most of his scenes cut, you can still tell from what's left that Bela Lugosi is portraying the creature as Igor. Um, yes, yeah, the way his facial expressions are, the like when he does get an opportunity to react to people approaching, things like that. Yeah, it's not a personality from the Karloff monster. Um, and the significance of that is this means that this movie is the first time the creature is not shown to be sympathetic. He's just a malevolent force in this movie. Mm-hmm. Of course, as we've said, there's so much cut that he's practically a non-character. Which is kind of interesting for a malevolent force, you know? Almost like it's an act of God when he <laughs> wakes up, except not. I know it's not, but it, it could have been, you know, if this was, like, their intent at the beginning, mm-hmm. there could have been some interesting things going on here. Well, but, like, as we've seen in the past with other horror movies, case in point, Murders in the Rue Morgue, if you try to change a movie from what it is after it's been made... You can't. Yeah. It's not going to be successful. What we end up here is the kind of um, unintentional, like, repeat, essentially, of the structure of Ghost of Frankenstein. And this is kind of going to continue to be the way the Universal movies treat the monster from here on out, which is the idea of basically keeping the monster inert for most of the movie and having that be hanging over everyone's head as this threat 
and the goal of the characters is to, you know, wake him up or, or get him going again, and then he, you know, gets going at the very, very end, and then the movie just ends, right? Like, that's the climax, everything explodes, we're done. It's very similar to how you see a lot of treatment of, like, the Hulk. Yes. In some, like, comics or, like, animated movies. Yeah, yeah. I think um, that's a really good, like, comparison um, to bring up the Hulk in regards to this movie, because, like... The Frankenstein monster is like the Hulk in that, you know, yeah, if he gets out, we're screwed. Um, also, like, just visually, if you look at, you know, yeah, the way they are There's drawn. There's a reason they got, like, a forehead that way. Yeah. But Larry Talbot's also the Hulk. Like, that's the thing. The thing that's essential about Frankenstein meets the Wolfman in terms of, like, the development of Larry Talbot as a character is that it adds on that pathos of, you know, like the Hulk... He's this cursed man who wanders from town to town, you know, seeking either death or a cure and kind of unintentionally causing havoc. In the original movie, he's in just the one place. But now we get that element of, you know, waking up in a new town and not knowing where you are or who you killed last night, which is, <laughs> you know, very much the Hulk. Bruce um, Banner. Bruce Banner thing, right? So Talbot's Bruce Banner. The creature's the Hulk. Um, is there an Iron Man in here? There... <laughs> Dr. Mannering. <laughs> so, um, you talked about the Nazi stuff kind of being toned down, or the anti-Nazi stuff. I will say, I did pick up on some things in the second half of the movie. Yeah, like, as it is now, like, it feels like how you can see an enemy everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I kind of take in point, Vazek, the villager who blows up the dam, he, like... He sees a conspiracy everywhere and lumps in Elsa, Dr. Mannering, Talbot, Maleva, all together, like, at the hint of, like, maybe they are different. Maybe they are doing something that I disagree with. Um, and it's not even that. It's just like, oh, they're associated with the Frankensteins? Off with their heads. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because even though the movie ignores, like, the realities of this, like, American and this Romney traveling around Nazi-occupied Europe in 1943, Sid Mac still manages to get in that sense of that paranoia. Mm -hmm. Like you are saying, like, like basically, the townsfolk of Viseria are irrationally hostile to anyone who's not from Viseria, mm -hmm. right? Anyone who's coming from the town from outside. So the themes that you get in the second half of the movie are about, like mob violence and fear-mongering in a way where it's just like the way that people will just turn on a dime it's the first time really that like the angry mob in the village in one of these movies like has kind of come across as like wrong yeah the only other time i can kind of think of it is um i mean be beyond the like oh no they're coming for the sympathetic monster type of thing is uh the vampire bat Right. I guess Dwight also... I was like, they thought he was a vampire, but he wasn't. Yes. Um, I guess the other occasion would have been, uh, fairly recently, the Dead Men Walk, where yeah. they're, they're going after the wrong George Zuko. Yeah. I will say, as this movie is presented after being cut, mm -hmm. was Vazek not right to be suspicious? Yeah. At least of mannering? Yeah. Um... It turns out his suspicions are correct. Yeah, he ends up being, like, he's framed as being this irrational dick, but then, like, him blowing up the dam is what saves the day. Yeah. 
Universal took what could have been a powerful and moving film, thanks to Seed Mac, and cut its legs out from under itself just to be filler entertainment. Pretty much. It is entertaining. I do enjoy it. But we could have had something really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. Or could we? Because alternatively, was there just too much baggage with Frankenstein stuff? Yeah. To really make it, like, to really pull this off? Mm-hmm. Like, Seed Mac has proven that he's, like, great with the Wolfman and with, like, these types of themes that he's working through. But Frankenstein is such a monster in and of itself that, like, I don't know if it was even possible to succeed in the first place, especially in a time when it clearly wasn't reasonable to expect audiences to keep up with this baggage. Yes. Yeah, you don't have home video, you don't have the internet, you don't have any means to, like, watch these movies over and over again. So you have to walk this fine line as Mm -hmm. a storyteller, right? Because you want to respect, like, the continuity of what came before, because that's the point of, like, making a sequel like this. But on the other hand, you don't want to indulge in it so much that you're going to confuse everyone. And I think what it kind of reminds me of is in... Uh, the early 90s, there was a issue of Spider-Man where uh, the Hobgoblin fought the Green Goblin. And it's like, oh, like that's so cool. Green Goblin versus Hobgoblin. But in the early 90s, the Green Goblin was Harry Osborn, the son of the original Green Goblin, and actually like a good guy at the time. And the Hobgoblin was the second Hobgoblin who was just like some random mercenary who picked up the costume after the first one died. In other words, neither one is the iconic version of that character who you actually want to see fight. And that's kind of what's going on here. Like, if you see the Frankenstein monster fight the Wolfman you kind of want it to be, like, the versions of those characters. And it is for the Wolfman, but it isn't for the Frankenstein monster, because by this point it's, well, actually, it's Igor's brain and the monster's, you know, body, and the Dr. Frankenstein we're talking about isn't Henry, it's actually his second son, Ludwig, and this castle that ruins were in isn't actually the original castle Frankenstein that you remember that they blew up in the village of Frankenstein, it's actually this other house in this other town. yeah. And so it feels like cutting down the Lugosi stuff was, you know, maybe one of the goals was to get rid of Lugosi talking so that people wouldn't laugh at his accent. But it feels like there was like a secondary goal here to try and cut out as much of the complicated Frankenstein continuity as possible. Like that's why they're only referring to Ludwig as just Dr. Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the villagers who are talking about like, oh, the Frankensteins only ever brought death upon this family. Like... If you don't know the series really well, Viseria could just as easily be the original village. Yeah. And like you were saying earlier, like the way the ruins are portrayed, the house that burns down at the end of Ghost of Frankenstein, Ludwig's house, was like a modern, normal mansion. It was doubling as a sanitarium. But the ruins we see here look like the ruins of a medieval castle like Henry had. And, you know, and there's this big dam behind it that was never there before, but that's neither here nor there. So it's for this reason where, like, I kind of sympathize with Universal here. Normally I hate when studios step in and try to edit it down or cut something after something's already been made. In my opinion, it's, this is what's been made, so just make the best of a whatever situation. Why didn't they just dub Lugosi? Mm. You know, like, 
they've done it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you're totally on the ball here about like, you know, what their motivations were and, and yeah, it, it's kind of like a no-win situation. That's why I don't think, I think a Wolfman 2, 100%, give me that ticket, here's $5. I don't know how much movie tickets cost. Not $5, Jesus Christ, like, probably like, try 10 cents. <laughs> I just rented out the whole theater just for me. Um, but, like, Frankenstein 5 does not work and is not good. Yeah, I think the problem, you know, like you're saying, is there's so much... Because this, the, this is the second Wolfman movie, right? Yeah. So, if you... You know, all you need to know about the Wolfman, if you haven't seen the first one, is he's a dude who turns into a wolf at the full moon. And they explain it. Right. They explain it really well, and not in a way that feels patronizing or kind of like, all right, now, like, let me just, like, fall asleep for the next ten minutes as they give me, like stock footage from the first film. You can tell that Kurt Seed Mac, you know, wrote The Wolfman, but had never been involved in the Frankenstein franchise before. Like, you can tell which one he favors. And yeah, them going back to, like, the, the village he's from to ask around about him is, like, a natural way to get, like, the exposition out. And I think, you know, if they wanted people not to laugh at Lugosi's voice coming out of the creature, they needed to have done, like, a last time on flashback thing where we got you know, footage of Lugosi as Igor and, you know, showed how his brain got put into the thing and have that be all explained to you before we meet the monster. You know what I mean? And Universal has done that in the Mummy series. Yes, exactly. So it's not like they don't know how to do it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, ultimately the problem is that this is Frankenstein 5, so what you have to know about Frankenstein is, well, this, 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 and the other thing, and that's too big of, like, a laundry list of things for an audience in 1943 to remember. And the thing that makes it frustrating for us now in 2019 is we're living in a world where Avengers Infinity War made $3 billion. And that's a movie that is like, hey, if you want to know what's going on in this movie, you have to have seen these other 18 movies. And everyone was like, for sure, no problem, dude. But I think like someone who hadn't seen those movies probably would have been able to follow along. Like there's just like... Or they could Google it. Like, that's that's, that's the other difference about, like, our modern-day world is, like, if someone's like, hey, do you want to come see the new Avengers movie? And you're like, no, I've never seen any of those movies before. Uh, The other person could just be like, well, you know, just Google it. And then you just read some Wikipedia plot summaries. You're like, all right, cool. And you walk into the theater. And you just couldn't do that in 1943. Yeah. So one last thing I do want to talk about is just, like, on a technical level, because we haven't really talked about this movie in, I guess, that technical way yet. Um, I think this is pretty well directed, honestly. Yeah, I think the directing, the cinematography, the mise-en-scene, for the most part, the acting, like, I, I think it's all fairly well made. Yeah, it's, it's you know, coming from that, like, reliable, universal... It, it's the thing where, like, a bad universal movie probably is still pretty darn decent just because they sort of know what they're doing by this point. Yeah. Um, it is the same music from Wolfman and Ghost of Frankenstein, just used again, so, I hope you like that music. <laughs> um, and, of course, we have Jack Pierce here doing the makeup again. They do... It's The Wolfman makeup looks basically the same. Uh, there's it looks a, a little more polished. It's a little more polished. There's also more transformation scenes. We only really got, like, one of those at the end of Wolfman. Here, they're doing them all the time. And they're pretty smooth. Yeah, their crust dissolves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, really well done. Uh, meanwhile, Lugosi doesn't look good as the creature. No, like, 
they have to keep shooting him from below to make him look tall. Yes. And I mean, part of that is, like, he's standing next to Lon Chaney, who is, like, a giant man. Yes. But he even just, like, you can see where his body is and where the, like, shoulder pads start or the head part starts. Like, Mm -hmm. it just doesn't look smooth. Yeah, it's, you know, he's got the, like, square Frankenstein head that, and then, like, you know, his normal Lugosi face coming down out of that. Yeah, he has totally the wrong face shape to be the creature. Um, But, you know, I would have been curious to see how it came across if he was talking, like how it came across in the scenes where he was actually performing. Um, The other thing that you can see here, though, is like Lugosi's 60 years old. Yeah. Like, you know, so they've got like some lipstick on him and the like the foundation of the makeup, you know, the the pallor skin, and he just yeah, he just looks old. Is is kind of what it looks like. How old was Karloff when he first played the creature? Because I know he's not a spring chicken. He was forty four in the original movie. So like fifteen to twenty years younger than Lugosi. That's that's a lot of years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it would be. Interesting to see Lugosi's version of the creature under, like, ideal conditions. These are, in many ways, the exact opposite of that. Yeah. Well, let's move on to ranking. For sure. So, when I started looking, I thought, okay, well, this movie is Wolfman 2 and Frankenstein 5. hmm So, I looked at w- where Wolfman is, mm-hmm. and I was like, nah, man, this movie's lower than that. Then I looked at where Ghost of Frankenstein is number 47, and I was like, it's better than that, but not by much. So, bottom of the list is 47, then I kind of worked my way up based on quality of movies, and I found myself not able to go above 37 where Dead Men Walk is, because that movie brought such a new, unique thing to the formula of Dracula, whereas this movie didn't feel like there was any new, unique things. It was just... Let's just put these characters together and make them kiss. <laughs> um, so I did something very similar to you when coming up with my range. I knew this was better than Ghost of Frankenstein mm-hmm. because Ghost of Frankenstein was just scenes from previous Frankenstein movies redone. There yeah. was nothing new going on in it, uh, at least until the very, very end. Uh, what I did do, however, is I started from the opposite side of you. Oh. So I didn't go from Ghost of Frankenstein up. I went from Wolfman down. And the reason why that happened for me is because, while I wasn't sure if this was... You know, I, I wouldn't say this is better than Wolfman. The parts of this movie that are Wolfman 2, I actually liked more than Wolfman. Interesting. Because I like this version of Larry Talbot, uh, who is the version that will now continue into sequel after sequel after sequel, uh, better than the original version. I like the element that's added here of... He's wandering from place to place, and it's this eternal tragedy that he cannot stop. You know, that he's cursed forever, and he can't get anyone to understand. Like, no, you don't understand, is like probably Larry Talbot's most common line. Um, So I actually like that quite a bit. So I started up at 14 with Wolfman, because I was like, well, it probably isn't better than Wolfman, but maybe. So then I, I worked my way down. Where I landed was number 26, The Man They Could Not Hang. Because as I worked my way down, I figured, you know, mm, you know, maybe, you know, Freaks is probably better than this. 
I don't know if The Man Who Changed His Mind is better than this, but maybe it is. Uh, the Devil Commands, you know, I don't know if that's better than this, but it had some neat stuff in it. Man They Could Not Hang is the one where they hang Boris Karloff, and then he comes back to life and invites, like, all the people who were responsible for hanging him, like, to his house full of death traps. And then, like, his daughter talks him out of it at the end. Oh, that one's so good, Ben. So, it's, <laughs> that one's fun, but, like, I don't know. I really like the new... St like, you talked about this movie didn't add enough to the formula to satisfy you. To me, I feel the addition of the Wolfman as, like, a wandering character... Uh, is a major addition to, like, that lore of werewolves, as well as being, like, the movie that solidifies the full moon thing. That's true. And those things are, are worth giving the movie some credence. I also will admit, even if it's not, you know, really how the list works, I suppose, that I feel like this movie is such an example of lost potential. And, you know, there are things in this movie that don't work, like Lugosi's performance and you know, Mannering's motivations and the plot and stuff, but I don't want to hold that too much against the movie because it's not like those things weren't there. They've just been taken out, right? That's true. That's a different case of, like, we've had movies in the past, and I think a little recently, where you talked about how, like, you didn't want to reward it for that ambiguity. Yeah, for not not what making we, a call. Yeah, that was um was that Undying Monster because it was so good but it, we couldn't decide it, it, whether Yeah, it wouldn't make up its mind whether it was a horror movie or a mystery movie. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Whereas you're making the case that this this is like a uh our forties Murders in the Rue Morgue. Yeah, this was something. It did have all the things in it that it's missing. They were just taken out. It's not a case where the writer Tried could, to, like, have his cake and eat it, too. Yeah, or couldn't figure out how to make the story work. Like, Kurt Seidmack knows how to make a story work. It just, there are pieces missing from this puzzle. So, anyway, so that was my range, 14 to 26. Um, so there's a gap between my bottom and your ceiling. Uh, that's in 26 to 37. So I do see what you're saying about Dead Men Walk having, like, a neat twist that was a lot of fun. We certainly gave the movie a lot of points for that. The flip side on that is that without that twist, it is just Dracula again. It is a PRC movie. So at the end of the day, like, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman does have better production values, better cinematography, um, you know, better writing overall, etc., etc., so those would be my arguments for putting it above Dead Men Walk. Um, but where, looking in this kind of middle ground, is there any spot that um, catches your eye? Well, I'm kind of curious about the black room being in here right. by the same director. Sure. I think black room's probably better. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, and it's going to sound to the audience probably like I'm flip-flopping a little bit. <laughs> But, as but we, we both do that here. Don't worry about it. Yeah, as much as I just said, we have to give this movie the consideration of its lost potential. On the other hand, the movie is what it is. And one of the things that we liked a lot about Black Room was it was a movie where you could feel, you know, the gears turning. You could see every piece falling into place. It was a meticulous movie. And this movie's a mess. It's not really the movie's fault that it's a mess, but it's still a mess. So I think, ultimately, Black Room 
is better. So yeah, I'm 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 kind of cool with putting it there, Sarah. If that's what you want to do. Cool. Let's do that. All right. So slotting in at number thirty, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, the first cinematic crossover, the beginning of the Universal Horror Monsters cinematic universe uh, from 1943, directed by Roy William Neal. If you would like to see our list of the best to worst horror movies, you can head to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've talked about today, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to submit an appeal, a suggestion, comment, question, anything of the sort, a movie that we've missed, anything, uh, you can submit it through Tumblr, or you can contact us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review, if that's available on the service that you listen to us on, or by sharing the show on social media, or just by telling a friend about us. Uh, another way that you can help us out that we would really appreciate is by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. At higher levels, patrons get rewards like weekly bonus audio cut from previous episodes and exclusive horror short fiction uh, that I write for our patrons. And if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we will begin doing an extra episode each month on horror-adjacent films, such as The Invisible Agent, like we mentioned earlier in this episode. Or The Invisible Woman. Sure. That'd be kind of neat. So that is patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we are headed back in time. Okay. More than usual, anyways. <laughs> Uh, okay. To 1926. Oh, did we miss a film? It's our first listener suggestion episode. Uh, so this is a movie I was not in any way previously aware of, uh, and it was suggested to us by listener Laura Baptista. Thanks, Laura. It is a Japanese silent horror movie from 1926, directed by Tenosuke Kinugasa, uh, and it is called Kuruta Ichipeji or A Page of Madness. Interesting. 1926? Mm-hmm. Cool. So we'll probably have some context to kind of reorient our brains around what horror was like. Though maybe that wouldn't even be relevant because it's in Japan. Yeah, I feel like this is going to be something very different. Awesome. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.